0: Hello everyone and welcome back to series two, episode eight of the Thrive Physiotherapy Podcast with me, Matthew Max
1: And me, Liam Bill. Have an exciting guest for you this week who has been a former athlete turned physiotherapist. We won't give too much more away and we'll dive straight into the conversation. Okay, so it gives us a great pleasure to be able to speak to Ellie Richardson on the podcast this evening. Welcome, Ellie.
2: Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: No worries at all. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure from our end. Um, just to give you a brief introduction, Ellie is a former GB and Scottish Commonwealth Games cyclist who also happens to be an advanced MSK physiotherapist, clinically specialising in the shoulder. Um, so we've got a great mix of athlete and physio background to discuss, but before we do, we'll uh, let you introduce yourself a bit better than we can, if that's all right.
2: Hi, Liam. Um, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so um, I currently work as a clinical shoulder specialist at BMI The Alex in Cheadle. Um, currently, that's my, my main role, but a little bit of background, because I know that your obviously podcast is targeted more towards students and new grads. Um, so I'm about 14 years qualified. So I studied a undergrad physio degree at MMU, graduated in 2007. Um, like lots of people, I did my rotations in the NHS, alongside doing a postgrad diploma in orthopedic medicine, and I also combined that with some private work, sports work, shadowing, volunteering, things like that, evening clinics. Um, but I always knew from the off that I wanted to work in. MSK physio I didn't know exactly where but I knew that was that was where my interest was Um, so as soon as I had a couple of years MSK under my belt once I'd done my rotations I um, then knew that I hit the entry criteria to start an MSc at MMU um, and that was the advanced MSK physio practice so I really liked that one because it was five years part-time and you had to have a certain number of years clinical experience under your belt and obviously still fairly young so still building up and still am building up clinical mileage so I liked the fact that we could combine the two and do case studies and things along the way so I completed that it should have took me five years but it ended up taking me six because my thesis was delayed a little bit and I had the Commonwealth games in the middle and some sporting and GB commitment so I university were very supportive and I sort of dropped in and out um, and then finished my MSc there in terms of um, sort of along the way it's obviously was a very busy time (laughs) for me that sort of five years because I was combining I was competing to a fairly elite level and I was combining obviously study and clinical work at the same time so it was it was tough but it it was challenging and fun. Um, I was really lucky to meet and work with some phenomenal physios along the way outside of my clinics and things so doing things like the shoulder rehab book with with Len Funk's um, upper limb physio group that was fantastic. Um, I also was an MMU sports scholar, which was also very helpful. So during my MSc, that, that added, I guess, an extra layer of support for me outside outside the NGBs I was with. Um, following on from that, I actually then ended up working for MMU sports. So I um, ended up pioneering like an athlete screening service or performance screening service there, um, which was, well, it, it, that was really, really good. I was well situated for that. Um, yeah and basically a lot of hard work in lots of different clinical experience across a variety of sectors probably quite a strong sporting bias but I have and continue to see NHS patients private patients weekend warriors elite athletes um I had three jobs before I went on that leave for um, obviously in 2019 we celebrated the birth of our first son Patrick um and then when I came back from that obviously it was starting of a pandemic lots of different challenges um but i consolidated into one role and that was at the alex which is a fantastic position to work in in a fantastic team with lots of opportunities and, and scope to sort of kind of press on um outside of that still a lot of things um external projects that i'm working on at the moment and probably the most exciting from a work perspective would be um, the potential development of a, an athlete performance screening service with an upper limb bias at the Alex, but that's some, something that's currently in the, in the pipeline at the moment. Um, and then obviously some, some research publications and things as co-author in the shoulder field, which are ticking away at the moment. So although it's, it's lockdown, it's still quite a busy time, I think, for lots of people.
1: No, it definitely is. Um, we'll look to tap, tap into some of those um, shoulder expertise a little bit later as well. But um, before we get into those, I'll, I'll let Matt ask you some key questions.
0: Yeah, very uh, sort of broad career and uh, awesome to hear. Um, I like the fact that uh, you sort of touched on the sort of variety of clinical experience you got under your belt before embarking on the Advanced MSC Um, you, um, I think again of, of late times there have been a few of my colleagues that rushed down that pathway and perhaps not got as much out of it as uh, they might have done um, but yeah as, as, as Liam said it's, it's, it's fantastic to hear the sort of uh, the journey different to sort of a couple of other previous guests and uh, you've got the sort of honour uh, this evening of uh, potentially being one of the last guests to go through our current format of questions um i
2: don't know if that's a good or, thing or a
0: bad thing but <laughs> or, oh, well we'll reserve judgment but uh, yeah it's uh, it's i uh, think things looking to change on the horizon for for the future series um but we're we'll cracking about further g and the, the first of the, the key questions is looking if you can give our guests uh our, our listeners one key recommendation uh for getting to a point where you're confident in assisting in the management of athletes
2: um, I think yeah that, that's a really good question. Um, my kind of key recommendation would be do something for the right reasons. Um, I think a lot of people start physiotherapy as an undergraduate maybe with a sporting background themselves and so they assume that that's the avenue they'll go down but because physio is so diverse they might end up in a totally different route and that's and that's fantastic. But I think it's very obvious when people are chasing a job in sport when the motives are I want the kit and the perceived status rather than a genuine interest and passion for athlete welfare or facilitating the athlete journey so that the athlete can do what they love to the best of their abilities for as long as possible. Um, I do think that if the why behind why you're doing something is authentic, honest, genuine, um, then I do tend to think that the how and the what look after themselves. Um, I've been quite lucky and I think physio is a lovely profession because like does attract like. So um, we've got a profession full of really lovely, genuine physios who advocate what they do, really want to share best practice. And I think our generation, um, very different to people like, say, Joe Gibson, Jeremy Lewis, you know, who who didn't have the same shoulders to stand on that we have um, and the same platforms to learn. Um, we're in a really good position where networking is a lot easier and create, creating communities of practice is is commonplace so I would say ultimately if you do something for the right reasons it's not one specific tip but I think it's when you're early on in your career there's you know um, yeah if you do it for the right reasons I think you won't go won't go far wrong and just be honest with yourself.
0: I think it's, it's a cracking tip and um, I think it's one one thing uh, for our listeners to sort of hear that, that sort of authenticity, that uh, being in it for the right reasons uh, is a completely different thing when you see it. Uh, when you see those that are in it for the wrong reasons, uh, for the kit, for the status, for the name on the CV, uh, it's quite uh, quite an eye-opening moment uh, and they, they do get found out. Um, so I think, I, I think it's, it's a cracking tip, a fantastic tip. Um, our next question uh, is about one piece of advice you'd give to student Ellie. Uh, that can be uh, as an undergrad, that can be the postgrad diploma in orthopedic medicine, or it can be as uh, on your MSc, uh, Uh, but one piece of advice you should give to yourself as a student.
2: That again, another good question. Um, I'm going to be a bit philosophical, I suppose, here, and I tend to not um, like to change a path. So I think if you look back, it's good to reflect and think what went well, what went better, but I maybe wouldn't want to give myself a piece of advice that would divert me in one direction, because I think all your experiences build up to, you know, ultimately make you who you are and the the physio that you are and the person that you are. Um, One thing I definitely say is stop seeing the physio who's endlessly ultrasound in your Achilles tendon. It won't get you back to sprinting. I would say that to my undergraduate sort of physio self, but I didn't know. So I wasn't qualified. That was back in my athletics day. Um, So I suppose seeing every opportunity as a learning experience, good or bad, I think people generally do try to do that. Um, that would be a piece of advice, and it's something I think I did. So I don't mean my answer to sound conceited. I think I'm quite good at identifying things I'm not good at, um, where I need to plug that gap. I have no problem being honest with myself, my peers, patients, and signposting on or um, or trying to find experiences and learning opportunities that will help me plug gaps that I have, and that's an ongoing process. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, I've I've no issue doing that. It would definitely be piece of advice I would say. Um, to sort of carry on with, maybe have a little bit more confidence in my abilities. But I think a lot of people—it's really reassuring for me over the years when I've sort of presented at conferences and things. It's been lovely to see that even the greats in physio, you know, even the 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 real leaders in our profession, they get really nervous before they present and and, and they suffer from imposter syndrome probably worse than many. So um, maybe I wouldn't give that piece of advice. I think if you're a little bit um, uncertain or unsure I think it drives you forward to sort of learn so um yeah I wouldn't necessarily give myself one piece of advice um
0: the ultrasound uh chat was certainly interesting and may may well unpick a little bit of that later on um next question would normally be uh, would you have done anything differently at any point in your career whether that be an athlete or a physio but mindful uh, as you mentioned uh, sort of not one for sort of changing pathways and sort of things happen for uh, a reason so I will give a little bit of flexibility in this question and say uh, is there sort of a pertinent stage in your career uh, or a sort of turning point in your career you can identify whether that's as an athlete or uh, as a physio uh, in terms of your development
2: yeah so I'm I'm glad you've given me some flexibility there because I think when people think of doing something differently in your career it's normally with maybe a different end product in mind or um, a different definition of what someone thinks success is Um, and I don't necessarily think status sporting physio otherwise is a measure of success and I never have and I never will don't know if that's an upbringing thing so I suppose Maybe um, that means even if I had done something differently from a sporting perspective, um, for example, maybe I started track cycling when I was 18 rather than 26, 27, um, then that might have resulted in a higher achievement on the track. But you don't know where that would have left you from a personal perspective. So I've always very much been of the mindset that you do your absolute best given the context of your life at that moment in time. And and whatever that context may be, and it's fluid and it will change. And that's sort of my ethos with that. So I suppose there's no right way, just the way that you choose and commit to. Uh, But in terms of any sort of key points in my career, as from an athlete perspective, but it probably made me, maybe the physio that I am today, that would be being mismanaged, I suppose, to maybe use a harsh term um, in relation to an ankle injury when I was 13, 14, that plagued me all through my sort of athletics journey. Um, and I was—I mentioned it before about having my Achilles ultrasounded, you know, expecting that to be able to get me back to sprinting and I was just misdiagnosed early on. So if a physio had just said they weren't sure, they'd had a sort of a clear objective time scales in their head as to what they expected, what sort of outcomes we were working towards, then that would have been flagged up, had been sent on and I would have had surgery in my teens rather than my early 20s. Um, I ended up having a large osteochondral defect and I was like my ankle was you know ballooning giving way um but you don't know you know you're told when you're not qualified you, you know when you're a kid you're told that you've got an Achilles problem that's what you think you have and ultimately secondary I did end up getting one because I was so on and off with my training then yes I was um never consistent with my load so that I did end up getting a secondary type Achilles tendonopathy issue um but ultimately that wasn't the driver so um that's probably a key point in my career from an athletics perspective, because I would have definitely gone a lot further with that. I was much more suited to athletics than cycling. Um, but then I wouldn't necessarily even change that looking back, because it makes makes me really passionate about managing athletes, especially collegiate athletes who are maybe knocking on the door of that elite sports team or becoming professional or selection for something. Um, so it makes me yeah, passionate about making sure that I deliver The right kind of care because you know how much that can really change their path sort of later on and whether that is signposting on or um making sure you you investigate things properly Um, i feel fairly well situated to do that but again it goes back to my answer to your other question which is the why behind why you're doing something you know i would rather someone be seen by the right person even if they're elite rather than saying i'm so and so's physio Um, so i think you know it's probably positioned me well to make sure that athletes go to the right people um, at, the, at the right time so from a sporting perspective I suppose it's a turning point but it maybe made me the physio I am today and, and from a physio perspective there's too many amazing people I've come into contact with um, over the last 14 years to maybe say one in particular um, obviously you could you know the opportunities I've had from a research perspective to work with phenomenal physios and my some of my kind of physio um, I'll say i us say idols is maybe the wrong word, um, sort of, you know, people I look up to and continue to look up to, like Joe Gibson and, and Jeremy Lewis, um, you know, they've been, and continue to be incredibly supportive, as they are for many, many people. Um, but then equally, just the, the environment that, I, you know, where I work at the moment, I've had an incredibly supportive um, team, a lovely team, look forward to going to work. Um, i have really supportive sort of management who've sort of, I guess, identified my motivation and drive to make services better for the right reason and have supported me in, in my development and sort of uh, progress towards becoming a clinical shoulder specialist.
0: Uh, absolutely a cracking answer. I'll, I'll go as I say, probably one of our favourite answers we received on the two series Um You've actually touched on a couple of points uh, from one of our questions coming up later, uh, which is always good. And you've linked back to uh, one of your early comments as well. There's, there's so much our listeners can pick from what you just said, so I really hope they uh, sort of take the time to uh, listen and, and digest it. Um, so many cracking points. And j- just to pick sort of but, but one of those, uh, you talked about the sort of mismanagement side of things. Keeping it simple, setting those timeframes, setting those objective markers, and deciding what what actions you take if you hit the, if, if you hit those timeframes and you're not seeing the change you expect, if you're not seeing objective change. You expect what happens next? You, you, you cannot go wrong if that's the case. Uh, it, it's 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 very very good principles to follow. Uh, it, it's so simple and so easy. Well, I'm really pleased you brought it up. So, I'll say again, probably one of our favourite answers uh, certainly that, 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 that we've received on, on the, the two series of the, the podcast. Um, oh. <laughs> you set the bar quite high, and I still one one final key question to go. And always give this a little bit of context. Um, we're certainly not saying this is the only piece of research ever. We certainly do advocate reading around the evidence base, taking a broad approach, uh, applying critical appraisal, critical analysis skills. This is just looking to identify uh, something you like to highlight, a piece of research I'd like to highlight to our, our listeners. Or maybe even an area of evidence. Um, but looking at one piece of research you like to highlight uh, or wish you could have read when you were a student, uh, what would that piece of research be? What would that evidence be? And why?
2: What a question. Um, so there is so much out there that is. Uh, Phenomenal, you know, research is coming out every day. Can't keep up with it. They put it all on Twitter and you want to read it later and you get around to reading maybe 20 percent of it. But there's so mm. much good stuff out there that would have been invaluable when I was studying. And I think a lot of it, um, I imagine probably a lot of answers to this question might move more down the communication, psychosocial aspects of physio where that sort of pendulum sort of swung back the other way a little bit. Um, and I've, I've sort of thought about that myself and whether I wished certain research was available um, or certain approaches knowledge of certain approaches was available when I was a student and actually I think that um, I'm not going to probably go down that route with my recommendation because I think that part of you know that that communication development the um, ability to form therapeutic alliance the Um, just your sort of self-awareness and your awareness of of others, it comes from that clinical mileage that you build over the years and I think if some of the stuff I'm reading now I read then, I think it would have blown my mind a little bit and made me even more uncertain Mm -hmm. as to how to authentically approach um, someone in front of me during a patient interaction um, because i was just so early on in that journey so i actually think it's a lengthy process and that will continually change over time so although there's phenomenal sort of communication based research out there and we could all definitely do it better i probably won't recommend that purely because of your audience um i'm gonna go because obviously i love all things shoulders um i'm gonna go more, maybe more specific down that route because when I my training background was in very much lower limb based. So obviously sprinting, track cycling, and very confident and happy rehabbing lower limb stuff and s Olympic lifts, all that. Um, and so I was a bit scared of the shoulder, really. And the shoulder was the first module we did as an undergrad. So you're a 17 year old, you're not, um, or I was 17, you're not. Um, familiar with your learning style, you don't know Greek, Latin, whatever prefixes, and you don't even know the names of planes of movement properly, and then they throw the shoulder at you is the first thing. Um, and to me, when I was an undergrad, A, I was terrified of that, and the scapula was quite an enigma to me. And obviously it continues to cause some controversy and, and disagreement in sort of among clinical experts, even sort of now, um, but there's one article um, in relation to that. It's not sports specific, but obviously you do need a really strong applied anatomy Um, sort of background to be able to clinically reason and justify your interventions. Um, There's a great article by a chap called Kevin McQuaid, um, 2016 article, and he basically, it's kind of like a critical um, sort of commentary or summary. It looks at the um, sort of theoretical perspective on scapular stabilization, what it means, and are we on the right track with it? Um, So it's basically kind of looks at, basically a model for load transfer Um, and kind of suggests that the scapula functions as a hub of a tensegrity structure, which I really like. And it's just the way that it it describes it. If I had read that when I was an undergraduate, it would have kind of all really clicked and fell into place a little bit bit better for me. So I would recommend, if your readers are a little bit uncertain, or, or feel, feel kind of like the scapula and the terms like scapular dyskinesis and things is a little bit mysterious, then read that article because it, it puts things into context so well. Um, yeah, that would probably be my answer from, from that perspective.
0: Another great answer, and certainly we can uh, highlight the text and uh, direct the listeners uh, that way if they wanted to sort of get a bit more of an understanding uh, around the scaffolding and everything involved, uh, which, is, as you say, is can be a slippery slope if you don't know where to start. Um, so, hopefully, that gives a good, uh, a good overview for our listeners. Um, that's the end of our key questions, and I'll pass across to, to Liam to unpick a couple of uh, more specific questions. Um, so, you've you already touched on a couple of them with uh, some of your initial answers which is fantastic um, but thank
2: you very much for uh, your
1: information and I'll, I'll pass across to Liam No, you're very welcome, thanks Matt Yeah, absolutely um, like you say Matt, we'll, we'll touch on a few of those um, athlete to physio questions a bit a bit later on, a bit of the injury history Elliot, that's alright, but I just want to take the opportunity there to jump on the the shoulder um, as you said, one of your, or your main area of interest, as a as a clinical shoulder specialist, um, we had this conversation last week with um, Jonathan and Claire on the podcast about ITBs where they see a lot of second opinions um, as sort of specialists in the area. With the patients that you see as, as second opinions, um, what do you sort of find that is commonly missed from their previous management? Is there, is there a particular one thing? Is it quite broad? Do you see a lot of different second opinions or is it does it sort of tend to follow a theme?
2: Um, yeah, that's a, um, a really good question. So uh, the second opinions I see could range from simply second opinions from colleagues within my team, it could be someone in a, in a sports team comes with their physio that's been recommended by perhaps consultant or another colleague um, and things aren't maybe going to plan and they, and they want to come in together, um, or it could just be an athlete outsourcing, um, or sometimes it's even if physios who work in sports teams themselves. Um, so it's quite a broad mix of people that I uh, that I would see for a second opinion. If I go down the sporting route, it's quite often, maybe obviously the benefit. I know that there's a bit of a trend for um, moving away from working in terms of like you know within a silo, like like just seeing shoulders. This is the first time in my career coming back from that leave that I have just seen shoulders. So for the last year or so. Um, I always worked in, in sort of every area, but with a subspecialty. But the benefit of, of just seeing shoulders means that you do build up that sort of um, that context, that, that breadth of knowledge, that understanding as to what falls under the bell curve within different pa- patient cohorts. So I think when I do see people from a second opinion from a sports team perspective, it might be because the majority of injuries they see are, say, lower limb. Um, so they don't maybe know what's normal and what's not, and they're not maybe 100% confident. Yeah. Um or if it's, uh, and similarly, I think it's just usually when I see people, whether that's sporting or otherwise, it's not that they've, I very rarely see people who've done really bad rehab. Um, It can just be that maybe the formula's wrong. Um, So sometimes I will give the exact same things, but just in a different way. Um, And now I think it's a really interesting question because there's lots of layers to it, because, you know, do, do you get somebody better because when they're sat there they're very optimistic they see your badge you've been recommended by a trusted source Mm. are you up to do really well you know with with that person so I think that's something that's worth remembering um so I certainly don't think that I necessarily know more or than say physios are referring in or coming in with their patients um it's usually just that I might apply it in a different way from an individual Um, athlete perspective. I think sometimes physios can be, um, if they've not been involved in sport themselves or worked in an environment around elite sport, I think sometimes they maybe don't delve deep enough into what an athlete is doing, what the demands they're placing on themselves physically, emotionally day to day. So when they're maybe taking that sort of social history and they're asking, what's, what do you do, what do you train? Some people just stop at, oh, I, I do S and C three times a week and I do upper body lifts and then they stop. You know, they maybe don't have the confidence and the experience. They have to sort of delve in a little bit deeper and really understand what that person is putting themselves through. So I see a lot of atraumatic, um, sort of, you know, ongoing, long-standing shoulder pains and second opinions, which I'm sure many shoulder specialists do. Um, and that's where unpicking that history is so important. Um, and I suppose having just the confidence to ask those questions, even if it's a sport that maybe you don't have loads of experience in, I've been seeing a lot of um, sort of the last two or three years. just a huge increase in saying martial artists, and that you, whether that's elite level or just people doing martial arts in their own time. And you know, I didn't really. Um, my husband is actually on the England team for um, in karate in Kumite, um, but I didn't really have a huge amount of understanding as to the exact demands that might be put on certain shoulder locks and positions. Um, I obviously could come home and ask. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I I don't I don't mind asking in those situations really exactly what is your shoulder being put through and and how um, and to what frequency. So I think sometimes it's usually great. We have usually wrong formula. It might even be not not factoring in enough rest. Um, it might be trying to over strengthen something and not maybe, mixing up sort of local strength work with more global work with more, I'm going to use a dirty word here, activation work. Um. You know, um so I think, yeah, usually wrong formula, maybe lack of confidence, uh, asking the right questions to really build up a picture as to how to structure your rehab. That was a bit
1: waffly that answer sorry. No, no. not at all I think I think all, all the points are really valid and coming from we we made the joke a few times or specifically for me I don't want to speak for Matt but coming from a football background like you say um the shoulder is is definitely rarely seen um and like like I say taking those all of those aspects of it and even understanding the sport a little bit but actually looking through usually it's the goalkeeper um look actually looking through every little bit of what they're doing. I think in some of our patients' cases, what they're going away and doing out of the club as well. So just to add on to your point there, even if you're working with the athlete and you think you're familiar with what they're doing of the week, you don't know whether one of these lads is going elsewhere, maybe with someone else, or still hitting the gym away from the club. There's there's so many different little bits. So I don't think that's um, waffly at all. I think all those little points are equally as important, especially as a second opinion, especially if something's not quite going right. And maybe there's students out there or new grads that don't have the option for a second opinion very easily. Um, Obviously we encourage people as we've spoke about in this podcast to be able to go and ask when they're not too sure, but it just gives everyone extra little, little checklist. Have I checked all these things? Can I become more familiar with that sport? Am I knowing exactly what they're doing? I think it's all, it's all really important. So thank you for that. Um, I guess moving on from the shoulder a little bit and focusing, focusing back on yourself. Um, you spoke there about being an athlete previously and obviously understand the demands of sport maybe being sort of a, a good a good way in as a physio. How has your perception of physiotherapy changed generally from when you were an athlete um, to now? So from when you were sort of on the other side of treatment to actually the one treating, but you sort of mentioned a few bits there and in, in some of Matt's answers, but would you give a more generic answer to that sort of question? Um, so
2: how has my perception of physio changed um, yeah, over yeah. the years? I don't think I went into physio with a set perception. Um, I think where the very first physio I had was a w- wonderful woman called Emily Goodlad, who um, obviously I have no idea where she is now. She was up at Inverness. Um, she was the Inverness Cali uh, Thistle physio at the time, as well okay. as private practice. Um, and she was, I think I was 14 when I first saw her for, for a thoracic issue. Um, and she was brilliant. And I was just really interested, even at that young age, just the way she communicated Um the knowledge that she had about human movement. And I just thought it was fascinating. So she's probably really, um, I must look her up actually, because she's probably why I got into physio really. And certainly one of the reasons I was interested in the in the MSK route. Um, but I didn't really have a set perception because when I did my work experience with her when I was 16, um, to sort of bolster my university application, she took me to all different settings that she worked with. So I remember going to hydrotherapy pools, private clinics within the football club, where she told me to stay away from all the football players rather wisely. <laughs> Yeah, and then also she took me to sort of um, her NHS setting. So it was a really nice breadth. So sort of from, from amputee rehab to, to, to um, cardiac rehab to elite athletes. She was, you know, she was probably rotating as a band six or seven in the NHS whilst doing all the external stuff, but certainly her bias was sports. Um, but yeah, so. I wouldn't say I had a set perception going in, I thought it was all really interesting, but I suspected that I would want to go down the the sort of MSK route just because that was obviously my background, but interestingly, maybe I would have thought I'd like to work directly in sports, but perhaps not particularly consciously, but as you are, when you do sport yourself, I think a lot of people think that there's more glamour involved in it than there is. And when you've been a sports person and you've you've flung yourself all over the globe and you've been sat in hotel rooms and going between that and the venue and back again and, you know, you maybe get a day to explore somewhere when you're there, it's not, you know, it's maybe not the glamorous thing people think it is. Um, And having done that, although I've had some amazing, exciting experiences, having done that from an athlete perspective, it's not really something I fancy doing um from a physio perspective i, I kind of liked being situated in a position where i could uh, somewhat impartially help where that was needed out with the bureaucracy of certain clubs um uh, and you know maybe just you know give advice and let people take whatever they want away from that and be able to see a huge breadth of clients so i where i am at the moment it's um it's nice i can see nh i do see nh's patients maybe I've got between a 10 and 20 percent NHS list um private clients sports people you know a huge huge athletes a huge a huge breadth. um but yeah in terms of my i think i've uh, sort of digressed a little bit from your question of perception um i think it's a natural evolution rather than a stark change so i think it's like a process that everybody goes through mm. um i know people can become quite disillusioned by it i think I, i've worked with some amazing physios who have almost um researched themselves into a frenzy which I find sort of a little bit baffling because obviously sometimes if if you read the research on most things you'd end up doing nothing with anybody yeah um I think that that can make some people who are excellent clinicians feel a little bit lost and one thing I love about people like like Jo Gibson who she you know she takes the research interprets it in a meaningful way to her with her own biases but she's open about that does that and and then kind of it's almost like she um invigorates the profession she goes look at what we know um and, and where we can go with that isn't that exciting rather than look at what we don't know oh my god what do i do um rather than maybe not realizing that you know there's there's a lot of impact that we do have as physios i've definitely gone off piece with this question um but in terms of from an athlete to being a physio um i suppose I look back and I do laugh at some of the maybe treatments or approaches that some people did use with me when I didn't know any better, but then I can't really say that because obviously people's, the evidence base available to people at the time was different and it will be different yeah. again in 30 years. So it's probably very unfair to look back and think, well, that was really rubbish when it was probably people doing the best that they could at the time. Um, although there were definitely some rubbish ones in there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, I think mean, that covers one of our questions around sort of your experience of, of your injury history and and physio with it, but it's probably a, a key takeaway point, isn't it? Like times change, and I think even as practitioners, like you probably look back at some ways you manage some patients even just a few years ago, and I certainly do, and you look back at it, and as long as you can reflect on, wow, that was a bit ma- mental at the time, Like, but that's what w- was the thing at the time. I think as long as people are identifying that, okay, it's fine that that happened, but I've learned from it, not that okay 50 years later i'm still like i say ultrasound in achilles or etc when uh, it's just really not any use to anyone um i think as long as people are identifying that and it's a good thing that you've obviously been able to see it as an athlete and it's un- unfortunate for athletes obviously and there's there's difficulties down the line in managing those cases but times do move on and that's that's a that's a simple fact of, of the matter with that really isn't it um I think my last point would just be to ask as as a physio now and looking back at, at your injury history, um, other than sort of maybe some mismanagement or management that have changed over time. Are there re- any real pertinent ones for you? Any, any injuries that you sort of share for your history that have been a, a learning experience for you or that you can look back on now and think, yeah, I really would have done that differently or I've learned a lot through having that injury?
2: funnily enough i would probably say in terms of memorable something that will always stay with me um kind of makes me laugh a little bit um but i probably would have approached differently if i hadn't been both a physio and an athlete because at this point i was you know i had a over a decade under my under my belt um yeah. was when i started um cycling was generally very kind to me uh, but unfortunately I had so we had a qualifying window to try and um, hit certain qualifying targets for, for, for Glasgow 2014 um, and I'd only been cycling well le- less than a year I had a bad car accident at the start of the year put me out of the gym for three months um, and if anyone knows track cycling they know that it's a power it's explosive it's mm-hmm. you know you need to, um, especially when you're doing standing start stuff so I had a sort of almost like three month period of deconditioning and um, and then this qualifying window was looming and unfortunately because of the way standards are set you have to hit a certain target rather than being recognized as maybe a sort of a development athlete you do have to have certain targets hit, or it would cause a bit of upset you know if the governing body put faith in you developing more than somebody else over three three months so i get that yeah um but it's an unlucky unfortunate sort of leading um and but i think i had two weeks on the track i had to just abandon the gym altogether um because obviously when you periodize and you, and you taper down it, it would have just made me it wouldn't have been ideal to try and chuck two weeks of s <laughs> and i did some stuff a little bit more intelligently but obviously not an actual sort of specific program and then the um i think it was april fool's day um 2014 which i thought was ironic um was my day to come to Glasgow they put on a closed event to try and qualify and at the time uh, the time that we had to do would have got bronze at the last Commonwealth Games now obviously times move on but for me as a new athlete that was quite daunting yeah Um, and it was a pretty long shot anyway that if I pulled together every single aspect of my best elements of training in different sessions if i pulled the the best efforts all together in one race i might qualify so that was sort of my like oh god sort of going in but we'll give it a go Um, and then the session before when i was in manchester um the session before i traveled up i tweaked my hamstring just in an activation jump so i just stopped i was you know inwardly i was there was a few expletives um (laughs) and and then i just got off my bike and i thought well you know (laughs) <laughs> there's no point in carrying on. This is not going to help, I've got to do this in two days time. So um, travel, got to Glasgow, um, had a mild, what I would say is a mild hamstring strain. It was a bit sore to resist. It was sore to stretch, all the sort of normal things you would do. I could walk around on it. Um, if I tried to walk quickly, a bit of a length. Um, and anyway, cycling is, you know, not particularly heavy on eccentric load. Um, and at least your hamstrings are fixed. Not if like I'm going to strike a ball in football or anything. Um, so I went there still pretty sore from fractured ribs and all other bits and pieces that I had from a a car accident. Um, And I did my first, or I I did a qualifying ride, um, and the coach, the head coach at the time, came up to me and he put his hand on my back and he said to me, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, "Um, I have the good news. And he said, "Oh, you qualified? And I was surprised. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, do you want the bad news? And I said, go on. He said, "Oh, it looked terrific. And I said, I know it did. It was the messiest, most horrible ride I've ever done. Um, anyway, I'd well and truly torn my hamstring at this point. I, would, I barely could get myself out of the bike, unclip myself, um, and I sort of hobbled off the track and I hobbled to the Institute Physio because um, we were in Scotland, it was the SIS. Um, a chap called David Brandy, who um, was always really good to all of us, a lot of time for him. Um, and I sort of hobbled into him, and it was about 10 minutes later, bruising started to come down the back of my hamstring. And um, Anyway, clearly torn it um and, uh, and i was lying on the treatment table and he was just doing a quick assessment and he said well yeah you, you obviously you know what you've done but the, you know at least you can rest now and build up so you know it might be six weeks before you can sort of do what you want to do but you've got a couple of months after that to build up because i think it wasn't till july end of july that we were on um so i thought brilliant and then my phone was flashing um and <laughs> i picked up my phone and it was the coach and they said oh, we've run the um We've run the program, we've run the, the trial run, sorry, we've run your qualifying ride through our program. And unfortunately, it's put you 400s off qualifying. So you've not qualified. I told people at this point I'd qualified. I was delighted I was through the moon. And my heart just totally sunk. And I was like, oh, my God. And then they said, so we've got two weeks. You can come back again next week or the week after. But then obviously the window closes. And I realized I had quite a difficult decision to make. I thought, well, I can't go away for two weeks and decondition. And no I've torn my hamstring. Um, with my physio hat on, if I go again and I just hold a better line because it was such an awful ride um, and I let adrenaline do its job, I'm going to tear my handshake more but I'm not going to cause myself long-term damage. It's that or nothing. So I actually ended up getting off the treatment table and David just looking at me a bit funny going, what are you doing? I was like, I'm going to go to it now. Um, so, <laughs> so I went down and I said, no, I'm not going home. I'm going to just let me go again. Um, so I went again and ended up qualifying by about half a second just because I held a better line. Then oh, I God. really did scoop up for about two months after but um that was probably one of my most and will remain my most memorable kind of injury experience and i suppose as an athlete you know how hard you can push yourself and then from a physio perspective i knew it wouldn't cause me long-term damage i think sometimes physios can go the other way and every little niggle is oh my god it's it's awful it's sort of you know life-threatening um but certainly in that context um that was that was a time where i would say being a physio and an athlete maybe helped but perhaps was a little bit dafty but it got me to where i wanted to go so
1: no that's a yeah great great story and i think like you say your main main summary of that's a that's a real athlete sort of physio conundrum there in terms of what you might see in your daily clinic i guess that's why working in sport is a is as as good and as challenging and working with those high-end athletes is as good and as challenging as as it is as a job because, yeah, you definitely get some experiences like that. It's probably with, if you speak to everyone, they've probably had that point where I know this is going to hurt me. I need to push through it. Having that physio hat there, like you say, has probably been a bit more reassuring of I know what's coming after this in terms of a lot of pain, but also something that I can manage Uh, instead of you sitting on the other side of it as a physio explaining to a, a lay athlete that... Well, there's this side of it, there's that side of it. It's a bit of a decision in the middle. It's probably helped you help to kick on a little bit there, but no, that's uh, that's really good for our audience here. Thank you for sharing that. It's um, that's a great little anecdote.
0: That's been absolutely uh, fantastic. Can I say there? Of so some reason, highlights I think I've done uh, as, as the questions have fallen, and equally you've uh, highlighted some, some really pertinent points as well. Um, so, just echoing what you said in terms of an absolutely huge uh, thank you so many for sharing our time and uh, some cracking insight for our listeners to uh, to digest uh, when we release the pod.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. I hope that's useful. Definitely philosophical, challenging questions for a, for a Sunday night, sure. <laughs> Thanks for having
0: me. So, another cracking episode there and really refreshing to get a completely different side of things uh here's some consistent messages with uh, our previous guests of Lewis Kinsella and Alex Tudor uh but also getting a completely different side to get that pathway from elite athlete uh to the physiotherapist I think as I touched on at the time a few really really key messages that I, I hope our listeners can take away how did you find it today Liam?
1: Yeah I think um that Ellie obviously was a physiotherapist in training alongside being an athlete was was kind of the surprising part for me. You, you'd expect them to sort of go from one to the other, but having that alongside it and hearing about her experience of sort of learning, going through some poor treatment, going through some better treatment, and then it shaping her own career was was really good to hear and probably quite a unique pathway that is good that we can bring it, to, bring it out to you guys. Um, before we go, Ellie wanted us to shout out a few... Um, people and places that she has been on on her journey that we've just heard from so bmi the Alexandra hospital mmu sport and mmu physio as well as joe gibson and jeremy lewis will tag all those guys on social media following this and obviously if you have any questions on socials you can catch us at thrive pes on twitter and instagram and ellie is l's underscore richardson um obviously pop us a message if there's anything for ellie as well And I think that just leaves us to say a huge thank you once again for listening and supporting us this series. So until the next episode, we'll see you then.